0: 12 days ago, nearly 200 countries agreed to the Glasgow Climate Pact at COP26 to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C, whilst also finalising outstanding elements of the Paris Agreement. But what happens next? The direction of travel has been set. But today, we're going to discuss the obstacles that continue to undermine the process, the progress made at COP26 ccag's latest report titled aftermath reflecting on cop26 written by members during the past couple of weeks sets out why question marks remain on whether we'll meet the speed of progress required to ensure a manageable future for humanity in particular the group believes there is fracturing trust within the international system from failure to meet promises to the major differences required of countries to agra- to address climate change fairly it argues that without maintaining a high level of scrutiny that holds nations to account change at the scale and pace required is nigh on impossible now if you'd like to read the full report and its recommendations the link to download is available on CCAG's Twitter, which is at climatecrisisag, and the CCAG website, which is ccag.earth. I highly recommend that you read um, this month's report. It's another excellent piece of uh, of work by our members. I found it was honest, powerful, and challenging. Uh, now I'm going to pass you over to Sir David King, Dr. Tero Mustanen, uh, Dr. Arunaba Kosh, uh, to talk us through the findings in the new report. So firstly, Sir David, over to you.
1: Thank you for that introduction Ade. Uh, And before I hand over to Tero and Arunaba, let me just briefly share my reflections on, on COP26 of course I've had many people asking me was Glasgow a success and there's no simple answer to that question somewhere in the middle is the truth there were some good things that happened in the negotiating process and in particular tidying up all the agreements made in Paris which was important but at the same time many many disappointments which we have uh, written about in our report so the the despite the real successes uh, the direction of travel uh, and the failures, the direction of travel has never been clearer. The world is finally in agreement, at least the world at COP26, that we are in a crisis. I never heard anyone question that word crisis, which is completely new at a COP meeting. Uh, we're heading for a disaster unless significant action is taken. And the language used within the agreement, of course, was not insignificant and should be commended. My own feeling is the the COP recognized the crisis, but didn't really recognize the efforts that are required to meet the nature of the challenge. It is fair to do that in none of the conclusions did COP26 go far enough. Uh, this must act as the starting line for us now and we all know COP focused on the next meeting Uh, uh, COP26 in Egypt is going to be critically important and so we have to now prepare ourselves for COP27 Uh, this has got to be the starting line and there's now a hard race to run to ensure that we give ourselves a fighting chance not only of avoiding rises over 1.5 degrees and the inevitable catastrophe that will bring but even at 1.25 degrees where we are today we already know that we have melting uh, uh, ice in the uh, uh, arctic circle region melting permafrost terror will tell us about this and all of this leads me back to the three R's that is the focus of our campaigning. We need deep and rapid emissions reduction, but we also need to reduce the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and we will have to to create time in the shorter term, see if we can refreeze the Arctic Ocean during the polar summer. There is hope, Uh, climate activism, private sector pressure, elections, and these are Perhaps groups like ours all have critical roles to play in ensuring that we give humanity the future it deserves. And with that in mind, I'd like to hand straight over to Terro, who as ever will remind us of exactly why we've got to continue in
2: this fight. Sir Dave and dear friends and colleagues, best of greetings from the North, from the boreal and I have just recently, uh, last week, returned from the Arctic here in Finland. My name is Tero Mustonen. I work for an organization called Snow Change, and uh, we work all across the Arctic and Boreal, and I also service in the IPCC as a lead author. Well, uh, as Sir David was putting up a lot of the context and and framing the post-Glasgow issues, Today, I'll be very brief on some of the points that I have been gathering from my colleagues and, and uh, we are thinking about here in the north. Before I go any further, let me just recognize the loss of life and um, condolences in Kemero- Kemerovo, part of S- Siberia, where 11 people have lost their life today in, a, in an accident in a mining site. So uh, that, that's, of course, a sad day for that part of Siberia. But if we try to come then to to the topic at hand, what are the things that uh, concern people and research and indigenous communities in the north? Are uh, very well reflected on the very first comments made by General Secretary Guterres in, in Twitter on the morning Sunday after Glasgow. Those of you who saw the message heard very clearly when he said indigenous peoples and local communities don't give up the fight despite what happened today. And that's that's essentially capturing a lot of the the, uh, feelings after Glasgow. What makes the North very complex and important in perhaps not so well-known metrics is the fact that one third of world's soil-based carbon is still here. In the peatlands in the forests and in in the Arctic tundra let me try to make it as clear as i can these are levels and numbers of carbon that are still contributing to that left carbon budget as we just saw in the nature journal piece last week and and uh, therefore they are on equal value as the rainforests and some of the other high priority biodiversity uh, sorry ecosystems and bio, biodiversity hotspots elsewhere on the planet. Uh, yet the kind of things which are right now underway are really affecting these soil-based and other carbon stores fast. The bi- second big driver that alters our landscapes and life is the fact on what's going on with the Arctic species and biodiversity. So many of world's attention uh, um, Announcements and and messages have been focusing on iconic species like polar bear and and, uh, the like, but we are very much concerned over, for example, Arctic char. a fish species that's already all across the Arctic region living at its temperature level about 24 degrees Celsius in freshwater ecosystems. One fraction of a degree further and we will enter into a cycle of fish death events that will cascade in food security, loss of culture, and many other things of this keystone species on the aquatic ecosystems for communities and nature alike. Here in Finland, we have partially lost the fight already because Arctic fox is now gone. It's no longer nesting in in, uh, Finnish, Sámi, and Arctic areas, and uh, its habitats are overtaken by red fox more southern and boreal species. So the species on the move is one of the factors that's really altering the kind of life that we know here. I have two points uh, in this very quick introduction left. The other one has to do with something of a um, big driver. I have been exchanging all days, every day, since Glasgow on what can we do on the boreal fires that um, raged across Siberia and the little that uh, or none of the support that we got from Glasgow on this magnificent uh, change underway. For example, in the eastern uh, region of Yakutia, Saha Yakutia, over 10 million hectares burned last year and we are looking at 300 firefighters that are tackling with these amounts of fire territories. So one of the things we have to do is to support these firefighting crews, early detection, early put out and then of course um, making sure that these fires don't become what they have become in 2019 and 2020 with immense releases of methane, worsening the case of the permafrost melt events and let alone loss of life for animals and indigenous communities alike. In the boreal, we have seen in the summer a 49.6 degrees in Lytton, British Columbia, and last week massive uh, flooding that essentially impacted all of British Columbia and lower mainland. So these are some of the things that are really taking place. Once in a century, flood has now become once, you know, 20 years or even faster. And uh, this gives you the sense of earth is faster now in the poles. The last thing I'll say, before we move on to um, the next, next presenter, are the solutions, the kind of solutions that are made in the North for the North. Because world is thinking about the Arctic a lot, but very few people are asking what would be the solutions from the ground up, from the people and knowledges and science that's actually from here. So, a lot of the things that could happen on keeping carbon on the ground are to do with large scale rewilding of peatlands, conservation of those parts of the arctic and boreal where we can still take action we need to engage with indigenous rights knowledge and memory because only by understanding the past we can understand the present change and therefore make the right kind of decisions and finally of course why don't we try to build alliance on this question of boreal and arctic fires because that is one of the most dominant drivers of big change on methane and uh, system change that will also impact waterways, large Siberian rivers, and uh, eventually, of course, the whole Arctic region. I'm very happy to take more questions, but these are some of the thoughts that um, we have had since Glasgow. And um, while it was a disappointment, we will continue to search ahead in these communities and in these programs and do the practical work day to day Time is running out and we cannot afford to change direction. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Tiro. Um, some really, really valuable information there. Now I'm going to hand over to Dr. Arunabha Kosh.
3: Thank you, Ade, and uh, good day to all of you. I'm Arunabha Kosh. I'm the CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water. I'm speaking to you from New Delhi in India. Building on what Sir David and uh, Dr. Mastandon said, I just wanted to draw your attention um, two weeks after, a little under two weeks after the COP26 has ended, to what I believe is the fundamental tension between two equations. The first equation is the carbon equation, which is embedded in science. And it tells us that the carbon space is rapidly shrinking, and that the space that's left for a 1.5 c world will disappear in in a very few years from now. What that equation does not tell you, however, is why it is so shrunken. Why is it that we have so few years left? Because that equation does not bring in equity into this conversation. And therefore, we have a second equation, which is the trust equation. The Paris Agreement changed the way in which we approached. Um, climate action, because it re- required all countries, big and small, rich and poor, landlocked and small island, to bring to the table what they believe they could do in the form of nationally determined contributions, and over time ramp up and ratchet up those ambitions. But that approach only works when we deliver on our commitments, and the less we focus on the interests of Humanity as a whole and the more we focus on our own self interests and that to our own myopic self interests, the trust equation begins to be undermined. And if the trust equation is undermined, then there is little hope that the integrity of the carbon equation will be maintained. As I reflect on what happened at COP26. I reflect on but five kind of stories that played out in my head. And those also offer some lessons for what we need to do between COP26 and COP27, and of course, beyond. The first story is that of a drunk driver, one who's brought before a judge uh, being prosecuted for drunk driving, except the prosecutor says that there is, that this person has been a repeat offender. If the person's response is that the only way uh, he or she will correct their ways, if all other potential drunk drivers are stopped from driving altogether, then we have a situation that the actions or the inactions of the past are equated with the supposed actions or inactions of the future. Unfortunately, in the climate negotiations, we don't have accountability for in actions of the past and that is why the carbon equation has been shrinking the second story that comes to my mind is that of a poor community that um, gets impacted by the actions of a rich community living not too far away but for the longest time the rich community has suggested that their actions have no impact that they are not responsible over time the rich community then admits that they are somewhat responsible and they even offer to pay for the damages, but actually no payment comes. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the actions of the rich communities continue unabated and the damages on the poor community continue as well. In this scenario, we have a situation where the conversation around loss and damage actually um, increased significantly during the COP26 deliberations but the hard delivery of payments for damages remained elusive. And we have a new dialogue to discuss how to generate the resources to pay for those loss and damages. The third story is about a merchant that comes to a market selling fine wares in the form of carbon credits. And unfortunately, over time, the shopkeepers in that market refused to buy those carbon credits um, stating that they are not of good quality. And this dispute goes on for a long time. And what COP26 delivered was an agreement that the Article 6 market on carbon emissions, on emissions trading, could get ignited as long as the past carbon credits, especially those issued after 2013, would be admitted into the market. That was a compromise that allows for breaking down some of the challenges that we had between how do we deal with the unsold, unissued carbon credits from the CDM market in order to trigger the Article VI market. The fourth story that comes to mind is what I call the rocket without fuel. And here, I think of high school students and middle school students competing to build a bigger and bigger rocket every year, except that the middle school students are told they will be compensated with rocket fuel. But every year they come, they're told there's no rocket fuel for them. But they will be delivered more rocket fuel if they built a bigger rocket the next year. And unfortunately, that is where we've got to with regards to the conversation around climate finance. That while every country is being asked to ramp up their ambitions and rightly so, the resources to deliver on those ambitions remain elusive. So will we keep building empty rockets without fuel, or will we find the resources that can genuinely drive up climate action. And that leaves me with my fifth story, which is around how much space is left. We can't have a low carbon world where the remaining carbon space is still captured by the historical polluters with very little left, less than 10% left. For the rest of the world in terms of their development prospects all these stories have only one lesson and that is there can be no real climate action and there can be no real response to the climate crisis unless we have accountability and all these stories have only one moral do unto others as you would do unto yourself and therefore if we have to think of the road between cop 26 and glasgow and COP 27 in Egypt, we have to think of a development COP, a COP that focuses on equity, that focuses on the resources, and that focuses on how do we ensure that the trust equation is not undermined in order that we can all collectively deliver on the remaining
0: carbon equation that is left with us. Thank you, Dr. Arunaba. Thank you, uh, Sir David King and Dr. Tero And What what I got from those opening um, points is uh, the importance of IPLCs, indigenous peoples and local communities, um, and also from Arunaba, the fact that trust, leadership, and accountability is needed more than ever if we're gonna try and save humanity. Okay, with that, I'm gonna, hand over to our audience for our first question which comes from uh caroline lucas um member of parliament for the green party here in the uk caroline you're very welcome
4: thank you so much Adia, and um thank you for, for letting me be part of, of of this i i wanted to say congratulations on your latest report and i particularly appreciate the emphasis that we've just heard again from dr Ghosh on the centrality of climate justice and what he calls the trust equation, because I think that became such a clear demand during the process of this last COP, both as a result of of the civil society movements on the outside, but also because of incredibly powerful testimonies from political leaders inside. And I'm thinking especially, for example, of the climate envoy of the Marshall Islands who made so clear that the difference between 1.5 and two degrees is essentially the difference between life and death for people in her country. But I wanted to ask in particular about your views on the contribution from the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, specifically on this failure to deliver the climate funding pledge or to agree to the loss and damage finance facility. She pointed out that climate finance to small island states declined by 25% in 2019, but she also offered what she called a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot of finance. And she reminded us that $25 trillion of quantitative easing has been produced in the last 13 years and that 9 trillion of that was just in the last 18 months alone in order to deal with the COVID crisis an annual increase in special drawing rights of 500 billion dollars a year for 20 years put in trust to finance the transition is what she suggested is the real gap that we need to close not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation And she concluded by saying, if 500 billion sounds big, it's just 2% of that $25 trillion that has already been created through quantitative easing. So my question is is actually not an economic question. It's more of a political question, really. What are the barriers to using that mechanism for the enormous threat of climate change in the way it's been used for the, frankly, lesser threat of of COVID, and and what can be done to build support for it?
0: Thank you, Caroline. Um... Dr. Arunabha Ghosh, would you like to take that first? I'll take a
3: stab at it. Thank you so much, Caroline, for that question. Um, a direct answer to what, what is the barrier? I think is the lack of imagination. It is only in the fourth time in the history of the IMF that you have a recapitalization of the SDRs that's happening. And that's not because of the climate crisis, it's because of the pandemic. We used the, the tool of the SDRs for planetary purposes, whether it is climate change or whether it is dealing with a pandemic or whether it is dealing with funding for the SDGs. These are all planetary goals that we've not been imaginative enough about how to finance them. But a slightly different position I have on this is that how do we, if we were to be able to use the SDRs, as I have also in my uh, research recommended, we have to think about what is the purpose uh, the purpose, I would believe, should not be for direct project financing, because you will quickly run out of that money in against the scale of investment that is needed. The purpose of spending $500 billion or a trillion dollars, how do you spend a trillion, would be to de-risk three kinds of things. Number one, de-risking against the physical challenges of the climate crisis, similar to what Tero was talking about how do you build up the local capacity to build the resilience, whether it is in the Arctic North or whether it is in the tropical South. The second kind of de-risking is for investments in emerging markets and developing countries where the sun shines the most, but money does not flow because we believe that it is risky to invest in solar projects or wind projects in the tropical countries. Now, these, are, these risks, might be real, they might be perceived, but it has nothing to do with the solar developer. It is to do with currency fluctuations and political crises and so forth. So, if you can de risk that, you bring down the cost of finance and you can crowd in several fold of that $500 billion in terms of institutional capital investment. The third kind of de risking is that of communities, those that are currently reliant on fossil fuels coal miners, oil workers, et cetera. We talk about the lobbying by the fossil fuel companies, but we talk very little of the conditions of the fossil fuel communities. How do we create an insurance cushion for them? How do we create upskilling prospects for them? How do we create unemployment insurance for them? Those are the things that are part of our collective obligation in order to accelerate the transition away. So If we can strategically deploy the SDRs, I fully endorse what the Prime Minister of Barbados suggested. I would, in fact, argue that the number should be double what she asked for,
0: and we should be imaginative in how we deploy that capital. Thank you, Dr. Kosh. Uh, Sir David, I see you have your hand up there. Could you unmute yourself, please, Sir David? Sorry.
1: I thought I had I keep being muted Uh, so basically until we have a full political understanding of the business and importance of managing the climate crisis we're not going to get this and that understanding means we're actually all in this boat together it is true that the developing nations are likely to suffer much more than the developed nations but nevertheless We are talking about a future for humanity that is looking very bleak. If we draw a comparison with the really poor management of this COVID-19 pandemic, I would say once again there the governments of the world did not understand that if they had acted quickly, We could well have seen this pandemic over in a few months, and instead we saw the governments of the world all acting independently and really all over the place. There's no real political understanding, and until we get that, I think we're really not going to get the action that's needed.
0: Uh, thank you sir david we have got many many questions to get through so uh, I, I please ask everyone to be brief with their questions and uh and and, and concise with your answers professor chi i see you have your hand
5: up i, I think uh madam lucas contrasting climate change against uh, the COVID 19 pandemic is a very revealing while both of them are now considered to be a crisis and uh, they are very different in nature. The pandemic is an immediate threat and the government failure to respond to the, the COVID-19 pandemic is in the eyes of the constituencies, uh, a real failure. And uh, and they will uh, lose their future votes and because of this failure for these politicians while climate change is more of a creeping uh, risks. It's coming slowly, it's, it's a crisis, and uh, and it's also everybody's crisis, right? then uh, this is a, a, a typical collective action problem. Failure to uh, come up with the funding for addressing climate change in the eyes of the local and domestic constituencies is not considered to be such a bad thing. So, uh, and then a lot of politicians will choose to be a free riders on this. Then uh, you know what happens, and we all understand this too well. Will be the tragedy of the commons. I think the really the nature of the this uh, uh, two problems, two crises, are very different, and this is really really the challenge. The I think the ultimate challenge for the human beings to when it comes to solve this collective action problem.
0: Thank you, Professor Chi. And uh, thank you once again, uh, Caroline, for for that great question. Um, It's time for us to move on to our next question, which comes from Salimul Haq, Director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development. Salimul.
6: Thank you very much, Ade, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, Greetings from uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh, where I'm based. My question to the panel and the committee is really about today and not about tomorrow. Uh, The sixth assessment report, Working Group 1 report, came out on the 9th of August 2021. And for the first time in 30 years of IPCC reports, Working Group 1, who are very conservative scientists, very good scientists, actually said they had unequivocal evidence of the impacts of human-induced climate change due to the emissions of greenhouse gases since the Industrial Revolution. This is now attributable to the fact that we have raised global temperatures. So David mentioned 1.25 degrees. I would say even a conservative 1.1 degrees is now seeing impacts. Therefore, we are now having loss and damage from human-induced attributable climate change. My question to the panel, is what do they see being done about this because to me 1.1 degrees of actual climate change is now more important than 1.5 degrees in the future we are seeing impacts we are not dealing with those impacts cop 26 abysmally failed to address this at the scale that it was needed Uh, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, put some money on the table, that's a good sign, but it's happening outside the UNFCC process. The countries inside the UNFCC completely gutted, even mentioning a Glasgow facility on financing loss and damage. It got deleted by the United States.
0: Thank you, Sir Um So let's see, I think I can see uh, Professor Nereli Abraham, you've got your hand up. Uh, go, go ahead.
7: Um, Yes, I I, I can't comment specifically on on the loss and damage. I I, I do feel the the disappointment that that didn't progress further at COP26, um, and I I hope that others can comment on that. But I think you you are very right in pointing out that there was a step change in the AR6 report in terms of not only putting climate change not just as some sort of theoretical um, construct, but actually as a as as a statement of fact um, that that this is happening, it's caused by humans, but also really reflecting um, the the advances that we've made in the scientific evidence of being able to attribute um, how human actions are making climate change worse. Um, And so while I, I definitely feel that disappointment that we haven't seen it flow through yet in terms of how that feeds into a loss and damage Um, discussion and and moving into those negotiations, I think that scientifically we are in a a much better position than than we were a few years ago in terms of actually making that case for the damage that we're already seeing playing out in the world. Um, And so um, there there definitely is a need to to accelerate the conversation in that space. Um, And I'll pass on to others who can hopefully provide some more insight on that as well.
0: Thank you, uh, Professor Abram. Professor Lavanya Rajamani, I see you have your hand up as well.
8: Uh, Thank you, Ade, and thank you, Salim, for that excellent question. As you uh, well know, I think there are limits to how far we can go with loss and damage within the regime, and much of the action on this issue is going to uh, be generated outside the regime. Within the regime, of course, both Article 8 of the Paris Agreement and the relevant uh, decision, paragraph of the decision 1 CP 21 limits What one can do with loss and damage within the regime, especially in terms of financing loss and damage. But the advances in the science are hugely and tremendously helpful in terms of climate litigation. Um, At COP26, outside the context of the negotiations, uh, both um, 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 uh, Vanuatu and um, and, uh, Vanuatu sort of initiated its uh, bid to request the General Assembly, to request uh, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, for an advisory opinion on climate change. Um, and a, a move was also made by uh, Tuvalu um, uh, in respect of the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. So at the international level, uh, uh, it, this is will be increasingly litigated, because ultimately, um, this is about rights and responsibilities of states. It is not just about what states are willing to do within the context of the negotiated Compromise text. Um, so there is litigation at the international level that is in the pipeline, and there are many cases that are being litigated or in the pipeline even in national courts in relation to um, in relation to climate impacts um, and the advances in the science, especially attribution science, are hugely helpful in uh, in these areas.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Levin. Yeah. Um, Professor Mark Maslin, um, I see you've got your hand up and then can we go to Dr. Fatima Denton afterwards? Mark.
9: So I'll be very quick. Um, I think the IPC second and third report coming out next year will be really important because of course that will provide the impact assessment, which will really hammer hone how much has really happened and what's gonna happen in the near future. I think that's really important. But I wanna come back to a bigger issue which is the lack of the hundred billion dollars and also loss and damage and i think that actually goes back to a lack of knowledge and education in the developed world about our history and i think this is incredibly important that we need to think not just about the science but actually educating people about colonization about how much we've actually admitted i think that if we can get the developed world to actually understand uh, the crimes of our past to be able to understand why there is this trust issue. I think that's actually critical. And it sounds really strange to deal with history to actually save the planet, to deal with climate change. But I've become more and more convinced, having heard politicians who supposedly studied history and politics at university, must admit it was a very strange small Oxford university, you know, they're not very good. But again, I think we really have that whole education piece to do before we can acknowledge those crimes and move
0: forward. Great answer, Mark. Uh, I I really think people have to join the dots and gain that knowledge, um, you know, because the science is important, but it's only important because of how it affects people living on the front line. Uh, Dr. Fatima.
10: Thanks, Ade, um, and thanks, Salim. I think partly some of the parts parts of the questions have already been answered, but I just want to say that I get a feeling sometimes that we are setting ourselves for failure if we do not look for other alternative spaces to complement what happens within a cup space. I think there are plenty of solution spaces out there, but we're not maybe taking advantage of those spaces because there are too many it's symmetries in the process. There's lack of trust. There are issues related to development priorities of con- of some countries. Um, and, and all of this is not coming together. So the, the way to go about it is to look at other spaces within regional economic groupings could be one possible example, or an Africa Europe sort of um, um, regions um, coming together. But it seems to me that, Part of the problem is that we're not widening the space enough to enable other spaces to emerge. We have a very unwieldy process of more than close to 200 countries um, with very stark differences sometimes and very different starting points. So I think all of this doesn't really make a good sort of negotiation process. And if if we go to the next COP, my sense is that the process is extremely slow. And we are more or less, I'd say, setting ourselves up for failure, but also, you know, we are going to one cup after another with, with, a, with a great sense of a predictability of something that we know is not going to work at the pace at which it needs to work.
0: Thanks. Thank you Dr. Fatima Denton, and thank you, Salimo, for that Moore, um, for that great question. Um, we're now going to move on to Fatima Syed uh who's a climate reporter uh the noir vp of canadian association of journalists Fatima. thanks
10: so, thanks so much uh for having me and for this very interesting conversation um I, I heard everyone talk about trust and and one of the things uh that i felt was lacking from uh the glasgow cop was um a conversation about accountability um and I wonder if the speakers on the panel can address what mechanisms need to be put in place in all countries to keep them in check about all the pledges and actions, especially when we see subsequent governments or, or changes in governments through, through elections and so forth. How do we just keep everyone on track?
0: Important question on accountability. Um, who would like to take this? Uh, I see Lavinia, uh, Professor Lavinia, you have your hand up. Go for it.
8: Uh, Thank you, Fatima. Another great question. In terms of accountability, um, one of the outcomes of the uh, Glasgow COP, which uh, the media hasn't focused on, uh, but is, I think, the most significant outcome of the Glasgow COP, is the completion of the Paris rulebook. In particular the rules relating to transparency will uh, speak to your point um so although the focus has all been on the glasgow climate pact and in particular the sort of language around fossil fuel phase down or phase out the real outcome of the cop was the fact that the all the rules relating to transparency rules relating to markets and rules relating to common time frames were agreed these will enhance transparency of actions that states are taking will enhance Credibility of these actions and will ultimately enhance accountability. And I think, in in terms of the Glasgow Climate Pact itself, there uh, were efforts to integrate some of these pledges that are being taken outside the regime into the regime, in particular in relation to net zero uh, targets, which um, so far we've had. 130-odd countries make net zero pledges. But we are not even sure whether some of those pledges are carbon pledges, or uh, GIG pledges, or what credibility there is or whether the NDCs that states have put in, the nationally determined contributions that states have put in, um, are on a linear path to these net zero targets. They typically are not. So what the Glasgow Climate Pact did in um, in, in a series of paragraphs around net zero is to ask states or request states to integrate their net zero targets into their long-term development strategies, which uh, will be docked into the uh, Paris Agreement architecture. And the, the, uh, there's there been a request uh, put to the Secretary to produce a synthesis of these net zero targets. And once these are integrated into the um, regime, there will be a lot more transparency around them. So while, yes, we don't have a compliance mechanism in the Paris Agreement that is going to ensure or enforce compliance with these targets, the enhanced transparency around these targets and pledges uh, improves accountability.
0: Thank you. Let's hope that transparency does improve the accountability. Thank you, Professor Rajamani. Uh, okay, we'll go over to Professor Johan Rockström, please.
11: Yeah, just just to compliment Lavanya here. I, I think there was something quite interesting with, with Glasgow, which is that um, a lot of promises were thrown around, but what's interesting, a red thread in those promises is that they were numbered. They were basically quantitative, all of them, and therefore they're measurable. The methane pledges, the forest pledges, coal phase out, the net zero plans, they are all, even if they are outside of the NDCs and therefore not as accountable in terms of the formal system, you can rest assured, the world will keep these pledges accountable. Why? Well, because there was such a tremendous pressure from civil society, from science, from organizations outside of the negotiating space but also because we have the tools and we have the Earth observations, we have the Global Forest Watch, we have the Global Ocean Watch, we have so much data today which makes it literally impossible for any country or city or region to kind of um, escape from from being at least put in the public domain for, 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 let's say, violating the, (laughs) the, the living up to their pledges. I think we're we're kind of turning a corner here, also in terms of of transparency in 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 the follow up of Glasgow, because the critique from outside of the negotiations were so strong, while the level of constructive efforts inside were 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 significant. It was such a mismatch between the in and the out, and I think that can help us also in the accountability.
0: Thank you, Professor Rockstrom. I think it's so important. I mean, so many people feel that um, power comes from The top down, but we've got to remember that power can come from the bottom up, and we've got to keep those people in power accountable. Um, Okay, we're going to move on to our next question, which comes from Wolfgang Blau, co founder of Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Wolfgang.
6: Thank you, Adi, and thank you, everyone. My question is is a very practical one. In the journalistic coverage of, of climate change, Um, We noticed that the Amazon rainforest, Antarctica, the Arctic, the Gulf Stream, the coral reefs all get much greater coverage than the boreal forests and specifically the taiga. And I was just wondering if any of you had any
0: thoughts on why that is. Another great question. Um, Who would like to take this one on? I I think we've got, um, yes, it's Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh. I see you have your hand up.
12: Yeah, great question. I mean, there is a a research literature on media coverage of climate change, and I think that sort of shows that often the the issue is framed around uh, political events and so COP26 attracts a lot of media attention uh, and similar political announcements, policies at the national level as well, um, around um, very dramatic visuals of the impacts of climate change or at least um, impacts that can be linked to climate change. So forest fires, for example, um, the Australian bushfires were a very visual image. Um, And so I think there are sort of certain uh, images that probably attract more attention because they're very dramatic and they they sort of seem more newsworthy they're very sudden they're a sort of crisis um and so my 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 thought around this is that may, maybe that with the boreal um impacts they they maybe are more they they may be more sort of gradual in some cases and they they uh they don't ha- they don't fall into those kind of stereotypical stereotypical categories of what what climate impacts are perceived to be by by many people within Uh, within the public and within the media sphere. So in terms of, for example, the Arctic and and, um, sort of, yeah, Amazon and so on. So that would be my thought, but I haven't seen a specific study on what you've asked about.
0: Um, It was a really good question and thank you for that answer, Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh. Um, We've still got so many more questions to get through, so I know there's some hands up, but please do excuse me if I move on, Um, I'm not trying to be rude, I just want to get through as many questions as possible. Um, So our next question we have is from Stefan Krauter, solar expert and professor at the University of Paderborn. Uh, Stefan.
13: Sorry, I forgot to unmute. Okay. thank you very much. Um, My question is a very practical one. Uh, To give to you some background, uh, we have a new government which comes into power next week. And uh, the Green Party has a major contribution to that. And uh, the renewable energy gain is very ambitious, 80% to 2030. But it's not enough, really, to meet the requirements uh, to avoid uh, to meet the 1.5 degree uh, um, goal. But still, uh, even if you have this less ambitious um, uh, goal, um, then uh, we have uh, problems in logistics. We we uh, we have to install within the next fifteen years about um, four hundred gigawatts of photovoltaics. Uh, that's it's simply not possible. Even if the politicians sign that, there are not enough engineers, there are not enough installers, there's not enough production capacity, and so on, and. Uh, uh, I see this in many countries in the world. There should be some something to bridge that gap from uh, from that uh, former times. I'm uh, been together with Herman Chair, which uh, set up this arena, uh, this uh, International Renewable Energy Agency, just to give numbers out what what is possible and to. to uh, to give some help to the politicians and i it is also in this um other challenge now how to implement uh, how to make this possible that we meet the climate goals
0: thank you stefan um i see uh dr christopher mcglade you have your hand up
14: thanks ade and, and thanks stefan for the question just to put a, a couple of numbers here on on for context in the year 2020 the world installed about 250 gigawatts of solar around the world that was about four times what had been installed in the, a decade before that roughly speaking to be on track for 1.5 degrees we need to increase it again by four times so we need to go from 250 gigawatts to a thousand gigawatts installed every single year um from the year 2030 onwards so we have in the past managed to have this huge ramp up in terms of wind and solar deployment. We've done that fourfold increase. We need to do it again. Now that is not easy, as you say, but I would kind of turn this around a bit and say, there are huge opportunities here. Whenever we're thinking about this level of deployment of renewables, um, of electric vehicles, of a lot of the clean energy technologies, there are opportunities here for, for countries, for companies that want to move ahead with this quickly. Those that move forward first, are going to to be in a great position. They will get the skills coming through. They'll get people coming through. um, They'll get that domestic um, industries being developed. And that will help them. That will provide them with a commercial advantage. So I wouldn't see this as a negative thing. I think there's a huge opportunity here. There's a huge amount of optimism that should be about the potential for renewables, for electric um, electrification, for many of the other clean energy technologies.
0: Thank you, Dr. Christoph. Um, I also think at, at COP26, um, the GFANZ, um, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for, Alliance for Net Zero was set up to try and speed this transition and, and, and also make the transfer to technology like this less expensive. Um, but I hope that helped answer your question, um, Stefan. But we're gonna move on quickly to uh, Rose Singe. Um, environmental change graduate at the University of Oxford. Rose.
15: Um, Yes, hi, Uh, good to be here and listening into the discussion, but also seeing familiar faces that I met during COP26. Uh, So my question is mainly on having recognized that the ambitions at COP and within the indices don't really drive us to where we want to be. Uh, as the discussions have gone on here, that at 1.1 or 1.2 already, many of our communities, especially for some of us where we come from, are already suffering a lot. But back to the uh, the language that were used, the language that was used in uh, the Climate Pact with phasing down and I mean phasing out, we don't really see uh, coal being phased out anytime soon. I mean that is my own feeling it's the transition is going to happen, but I don't think it's happening. It's going to happen as soon as possible. But then why is it that it can be done? The science has been very clear that we need to phase out fossil fuel, but what can what can be done right now to, I mean, encourage the ambitions of countries and states as we moved COP27, because we don't want to have COP27 again and come through, have these disappointments again. I know the transition won't happen very fast, but why is it can be done at least to uh, make it faster uh, and protect some of the communities, like where we, some of us, come from.
0: Excellent question, and I think, I mean, it's at the heart of the thing. I feel like the younger generation are losing trust in 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 the COP um, process, and I, I think that's coming out from um, your your question there, Rose. The frustration. See, Professor Nerili Abram, you have your your hand up.
7: Yeah, thank you, Rose, Um, it was a great question. Um, And and I think that one of the the positive things that came out of COP26 was um, this sort of not letting countries sort of off the hook that they have another five years until they have to come back and and increase their their ambition. So I think that was a really positive outcome that um, there's an expectation now that at COP27 next year, um, we do expect that countries who haven't increased the ambition of their pledges um, will be requested to, to take another look at their, um, their pledges for, for 2030 and, and what they can do. Um, certainly the, the country I come from, um, Australia, is, is one of those countries that went into to COP26 without increasing their ambition for, for what they were going to do out to 2030. And so now the pressure is on for what they'll do in the coming year um, and then leading up to COP. And I think that that that's really is a recognition that the, the clock is ticking against us now and that we don't actually have the time to to waste to sort of hold it out for another five years and then see what people come back with. Uh, so, so I think that, that that's a really positive sign. Um, and even though um, we don't have that wording in there about a phase out of coal, um, but by keeping the pressure on the, the 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 ambition that countries have for emission reductions, and also tying it very closely into the scientific evidence for for what the carbon budget is, um, that that hopefully we do have a mechanism in there to to help to keep that pressure on.
0: Transparency, I feel, is what you're 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 getting at there, Professor Nerely. um Dr. Fatima Denton. Yeah, thanks, Rose, and good to see you again.
10: Um, yes, I think. We we definitely need to understand the nuance between phasing out and phasing down. I think not all countries are going to be sort of able to phase out completely. Late comers that have contributed to this problem in terms of emissions, I think, should be allowed to travel at their own pace because they're simply not going to have um, the wherewithal to sort of go towards a rapid um deep um emissions reductions Um, the other thing to mention is that a phasing out has implications for weaker economies because if a country is you know dependent on coal and and the report talks about zambia these are countries that are not able to meet their basic energy needs Um, and therefore many countries again in um, the part of the world where i come from are very much looking at industrialization as the next big thing in terms of their development plans. So a lot of the jobs that they're going to create are going to be created out of industrialization. So unless you can find very smart technologies and ways in which they can industrialize fast, um, asking them to get rid of some of their fossil fuel that would expand that growth, um, I think can be some sort of an economic suicide. So really, I think that the, the starting points are so different that you can't expect everyone to phase out. So I think that keeping that nuance very clear and being very deliberate about how we're going to enable countries who haven't got the tools to phase out completely and the support that they would need, whether that's in climate finance, infrastructure or technology transfer, I think all of those things would be important transitional levers. And my problem is that we're not talking enough about these blind spots. There are so many blind spots in the transition, and many of these uh, are not talked about. We we talk about renewable energy in a very positive way, and it should be a positive story. But we have to realize that there are current difficulties in the deployment of renewable, the penetration of renewable in, in, in so many countries, and those problems haven't been resolved so not that we necessarily have to wait for them to be resolved but we also have to bring some goods to the table and to acknowledge the fact that there are blind spots and the transition process is far from easy
0: thank you dr fatima i think the 100 billion dollar green fund was supposed to be at the heart of this to help um, developing countries make that transition to green energy but um I suppose that's a subject that we could talk about for a long time. But let's move on to our next uh, question. Uh, thank you, Rose, by the way, for that question. Um, and this one comes from John Burke, municipal decarbonisation expert working uh, with UK cities to deliver their net zero commitments. John, take it away. John, you're on mute. Can you unmute yourself,
16: please? There we go. Um, Thank you very much um, to the CCAG for having me along um, today to ask a a question. It's humbling to be in such illustrious company, frankly, and before I proceed, I'd just like to endorse the point that Dr Denton had made earlier today about the use of and the creation of alternative spaces to COP to ensure that we can um, continue to make progress even in the absence sometimes of big uh, international events such as such as COP and I would kind of point to organisations like C40 Cities, ICLEI and the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy as, um, uh, you know, as those kinds of alternative spaces where hugely exciting things are happening at the municipal level that can potentially be scaled up to the level of a nation state. Um, and so I think there's a great deal we can learn from cities and cross-collaboration between urban environments is hugely important, um, not least because um, cities, urban environments and megacities in particular are more in common with each other than many nation states do. So the potential for collaboration um, and uh, uh, learning from one another is, I think, uh, more significant at that scale. Um, and I'm very positive and enthusiastic about the level of energy and enthusiasm that currently exists in municipal um, politics and entities to deliver net zero commitments. But onto my question, which is that in March, 2021, the UK's Public Accounts Committee, warned that the government has not engaged with the public on the behavior changes that achieving net zero emissions will require, despite 62% of emissions cuts needing to come from changes to our lifestyles. And that's kind of specific to the industrialized world, I might add. In October 2021, the Climate Change Committee noted that the government's net zero strategy contains an insufficient amount of demand management to deliver the UK's decarbonisation commitments. My question to the panel is, Was there a big demand management hole in COP26? And if so, what can be done to engage politicians and policymakers more widely in this important piece of the decarbonisation jigsaw?
0: Big question there, John. Um, Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, I see you have your hand up.
12: Yeah, I'm hoping others have views on on this as well, but yes, in short, I think there was a, a demand management gap. I think the focus was very much on energy supply, um, and to a limited extent on things like um, te- yeah technologies and like vehicle technologies for example, but um, much much less in terms of getting people to particularly in developed countries to use less energy and to change diet and to travel less and fly less and all these these things. And I think part of that, and it is also reflected in the fact that it was fairly much absent in the UK's uh, net zero strategy, is that it is seen as being. Politically difficult that it might be a you know it might mean that they that politicians lose votes that it's just too difficult to get people to change their behavior that it's threatening that it might mean lower standards of living um, in developed countries etc. So I think kind of it's still it's still seen as something and that that was quite explicit I think in the forward to the UK strategy. Um, so I think in terms of how we move beyond that that's that's difficult but I think it is about reframing behavior change and demand demand management. In much more positive terms, to say this isn't a threat. There are actually opportunities here. There are opportunities to improve people's health and well-being, to create green jobs, to reskill people in new sectors, and um, and so on. And it is not about you know reducing uh, quality of life or well-being. It's not about people losing jobs, etc. So this is, I think, there's a job here to kind of reframe it in terms of those those opportunities and those co-benefits. So that would be my my, my initial thought.
0: Thank you, Professor Whitmarsh. Uh, Professor Mark
9: Maslin. Um, So I completely agree with what Lorraine said about being very positive about producing the win-win solutions. But I also want to have a little bit of warning because I think we have to be very careful about not blaming the individual. And I think that sometimes a lot of the narrative is, well, you're using your petrol car, you're using your gas boiler, you're basically taking your kids to school. You know, I think that's really problematic. And I think what Lorraine is saying is we need to move away from that, which is then what we need is we need government to actually provide some infrastructure and some incentives so we can actually all do the right thing. Again, when we're looking at say, moving away from meat and having a more plant-based diet, then we need some taxation to, remove some of the unhealthy, really over-processed food, we also need to lift people out of extreme poverty in the developed world and developing world so they actually have choices. So I think it's a balancing act between being really positive about behavior change, making sure that people are empowered, but at the same time, not blaming people for climate change.
0: Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, and uh, John, I hope those, qu- those helped uh, answer your questions gonna move on we've got three more questions to get through. our next question comes from uh Brent loken WWF global food lead scientist Brent
17: it's all yours. hey everybody um yeah we're team yeah, I think we're running out of time here so i'll be quick and it comes back to what we're currently talking about and that's food. Um, One of my big concerns is that uh, food systems are still not being discussed to the level that they need to be discussed at top, you know, and if we continue to ignore them, um, we're doing it at our own peril. Uh, It was great to see so many food events at top this year, I think we hosted or were part of uh, nearly 25. uh, But it's still lacking in the formal like the formal parts of cop so what do we need to do to lift food systems and all parts of food systems not just agriculture but also diets um you know between now and cop 27 you know to really push to make cop 27 the food cop
0: great question brent um have we got any hands up for this one uh i can see uh mercedes professor mercedes Bustamante.
18: Yeah, thanks Brent for, for the question. You are right, food systems is an important part of the global emissions and I think in Glasgow we have two important advances. The first one was the declaration on forest and land use. This also includes to stop deforestation and the sustainable use of agricultural lands. I think it's this important aspect. I know that we have a forest declaration before in New York in 2014. But i think this time we have more countries involved a large extent of forest area and also more funds involved and i think the second important advance was the methane uh, agreement the methane pledge that also involves the livestock sector and i think this is an important component of the, the greenhouse gas emissions i think one issue that is still missing is the nitrogen management in agricultural areas that contributes a lot with n2o emissions and i think that's the nitrogen issue also includes the inequality between countries and regions, because it's an issue of too much and too little. So some countries using a lot of nitrogen and other countries that need to use more nitrogen. But I think these issues are covered. And about the diet, I think this is a particularly complex point because it involves also a lot of cultural context and aspects that needs to be careful addressed. But I, I think some points are there, and if you check the NDCs, man, many countries are included in agricultural forests and land use in the NDCs so as part of these solutions as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Professor Mercedes Bustamante. I see also uh, Professor Johan Rockström has their hand up.
11: Yeah, thanks, and great to see you, Brent. And, uh, <clears throat> well, this will come as no surprise to you, of course. I I, I totally agree with you, and we've tended to kind of have the food um, agenda eat itself uh, deeper and deeper into the climate negotiations but mostly hand wavy and i think that mercedes points you put your finger on, on on a few of the quantitative operationalizations i think we have to go further i mean we are recognizing in the energy transformation that we need legislation we need regulation and we need economic policies But we're never talking about that in the food space but we need to have exactly the same thing i think i think mark you kind of put your finger on that we cannot load the responsibility for healthy food transitions to the individual only we have to make it cheaper to do the right sustainable healthy choices and that can only be done by having a price a cost on destroying ecosystems releasing nitrous oxide methane destroying soil carbon and and we've not recognized that yet. We, we're kind of still believing that the food system is kind of some kind of untouchable area. And I think we need to become much more policy savvy also in the food space to to ever make it part of the of the serious climate discussions. And I think we are taking a few steps that direct by having the the nature positive agenda for the Kunming process to put science based and some of the real key issues on avoiding expansion into intact ecosystems for example but anyway so, so i think it's about quantifications to a very large extent
0: thank you professor Johan rockstrom and that's why um, climate change is such an existential um issue you know it's about us changing the way we think um and uh thank you brent uh time for us to go to our next question which comes from ed goodell who ed goodell project manager whale and dolphin conservation ed over to you
16: Thanks, Adi, and thanks so much to CCAg for inviting me along to ask a question today. Uh, So the COP26 text finally strongly recognizes the ocean as a major nature-based solution to the climate crisis. And at Whale and Dolphin Conservation, we're working with a network of scientists, conservationists, economists and businesses to scale up whale conservation, given their major role as ecosystem engineers. My question, though, is how can the newly announced annual Ocean Dialogue be utilized? To unlock genuine conservation collaboration in the deep ocean, beyond the borders of national jurisdiction.
0: Good question. Who wants to take this one on? Uh, I I see Tiro, so um, Tiro, Professor Tiro Mustonen. Yeah, uh,
2: question of the deep oceans and beyond the EEZ conservation will be a tough one for these decades what i wanted to offer as a solution quickly was to <clears throat> refer to the precautionary a- uh, agreement on central arctic ocean fisheries that was agreed to by china korea the arctic states eu us and some of the other countries so there are some diplomatic efforts that are having a consensus on <clears throat> how to um, manage and even take precautionary steps I don't think much of humanity understands that we'll have a new ocean soon in our hands the central right. arctic ocean While this doesn't tackle the question of all of the beyond ease at ocean governance this model on the on the uh ceo agreement could be a model on a larger framework and of course uh it will be a wild space for a long time and uh <clears throat> we will just have to stick with IMO and and other UN mechanisms for the time being. However, there are new steps like the Central Arctic Ocean Agreement that might be a model for a better future. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tero Mustanen. Sir
0: David King, I can see you have your hand up. Dave, can you unmute yourself?
1: You've raised a critically important uh, question. uh, and, And so let me just quickly say, The oceans are not well governed at the moment, and nor have we governed the state of the oceans well for the last 400 years. And I say that because, of course, talk about whales. Whales were one of the first sources of alternatives to oil before we discovered oil. And the whale population of the planet was reduced by a factor of more than 100 over the last three or 400 years, as we caught whales as quickly as we could, this massive enterprise around the oceans of the world to remove whales for their blubber. Now, what what we therefore have today is a remnant, and much of the oceans compared with that period of time is now more like a, a land-based desert uh, as a result of the loss of, uh, of species. It's only recently the function of the whales in the biosystem of the oceans has been fully understood. I think we need to work really hard and really quickly on managing the, uh, the, the global system for operating how we manage the future of the oceans. And at the moment, I don't think we have a system in place.
0: Thank you, Sir David, Um, and thank you also, Ed. That was a really, really good and important question. Um, Okay, Uh, we are coming to our final question of the the session, and this comes from Nick King, Managing and Communications Manager at Energy Research um, and Accelerator. Nick, your question, please. Sorry Nick, could you unmute yourself, please? Hello. Hello. Yep,
9: we can hear you. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, So my question is, if governments aren't doing what is necessary right now um, for us to stay below the
1: 1.5 degree target, what role should the international scientific community play? both in terms of lobbying governments and educating the public about
3: the urgent need for action.
0: Thank you for being so concise, Nick. Uh, So, Sir David King, I see you have your hand up. David, unmute yourself, please. People
1: keep muting me. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a heritage hand, but let me nevertheless try and answer the question. That is precisely what the IPCC was generated for. And of course, that's where we derive our central actions from. The IPCC puts out its big reports once every six or seven years, and we put out a report once a month. The whole point of setting this organization up is to answer your question. We, we are a group of experts drawn from 11 different countries and we believe we have a critically important role to play. We would like to see the role expanded moving forward in time and to achieve this, we need to raise money, frankly, to so that we can get a support system in place on an international basis and, and deliver this. I'm going to stop at that point because I see my
0: good friend Bob Correll has his hand up. Dr. Bob Corral. Can we can you unmute yourself, please, sir? <laughs> go ahead. There we go. Uh David,
19: Sir David, you um, gave me precisely the opportunity that I wanted to talk about. There have been an extraordinarily number of discussions, meetings, conferences, workshops in this short period of time since uh cop uh 26 ended. Um, There are several themes that I wanted to mention. One, the IPCC has mentioned several times. I went back into all of the various reports since 2007 with AR4 and asked the question is there progress? For example, the word very high confidence did not exist in the reports in 2007 and it's been substantially increased over time. So IPCC is doing a better job to help us give a confidence in the knowledge base that we, that we have. The other theme that came up in these discussions was, uh, hey, Corral, don't you remember we're living in a nationalistic world? And so it's gonna be hard to talk about how we do things globally. I, I have some suggestions Sir David, that we adopt the following strategy, and that is every month we ask the following question. What have we done, action wise, in (laughs) COP 26.1? We'll go to 26.2 over the next 10 months, asking ourselves, how are we in this wonderful enterprise called the AAAG, are we contributing to the action part of this agenda? One of the meetings occurred only three or four days ago in a local arena, uh, who were very disappointed in what they saw uh, in in the COP. In that room were uh, 200 people, 50 people from each of four quarters, a science expert community, a private sector business industrial community, a governance community, and one that surprised all of us was the NGO philanthropy community. Those are the players who might very well help us work our way to 27 by going to 26.1, 26.2, 26.3, to give us our own agenda that we work towards 27 in a constructive action uh, arena. So with that, I'll stop and just conclude with with uh, our representative, um, uh, Secretary Kerry. His his uh, concluding remarks have gotten very high visibility in the U.S. He said, "I believe this is existential, and for many of you out there, it already exists. Unfortunately, people are dying." That kind of of statement had gotten a high visibility in the US and in in a way, it is a companion to climate crisis, uh, the word existential um, as a way of thinking about the action that we take. And I'm suggesting we move to a monthly uh, way of talking about
0: it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bob Carell, for that really valuable um, uh, contribution there. And thank you, Nick King, for for that great question. Thank you to all of our CCAG members. Um, I think it's been a really, really wonderful um, uh, uh, live stream today. Um, So that's all the time we have. And a big thank you, as I said, to the CCAG members for such a powerful discussion. Um, We've reflected on cop 26 and what needs to be done going forward and as ever a very big thank you to those of you watching at home and to everyone who joined us today uh, with such vital questions if you want to learn more about the work that ccag are undertaking you can find out more information on the website at ccag.earth you can also follow the group on twitter instagram and facebook and you can send any additional questions that you may have for ccag on their social media pages too thank you once again for joining us today we're going to take a short break during the holiday season but we will be back stronger than ever for another meeting in january until next time take care
1: The situation with climate change is clear. The crisis is not being managed in the way it needs to be managed at the moment. I am Sir Dave King. I have set up a climate crisis advisory group. The group represents the international experts on climate change to be available to the public to policymakers and to the media around the world. We need action now. What we as humanity do over the next five years will, in my view, determine the future of civilization.